From 26, this is Rachel and Katie. listeners to the third episode of 26. Katie had just put the chicken in the oven and you can hear a seven-year-old in the background, a little different from Daisy the parrot in the background, but she might make an appearance if we're lucky too. Yes, a little seven-year-old Milo in the background while I'm at chicken cordon bleu. I'm making chicken piccata later, so it's a chickeny sort of day. We are going to do something a little different this episode, opening up and sharing a little bit about our stories. So this episode is really going to be dedicated to getting to know Katie better and her story as living as somebody with epilepsy. To guide our conversation, I came up with a list of questions that I thought of for you, Katie, that I would like to explore more and and get to know about you. I love it. Thank you for just uh, getting to know me a little bit more. Yes, Rachel, this is going to be um, uh, a good, a good conversation and a little slice. Thank you. And I talked a little bit earlier. We can't really go over decades in just one episode. So, but here we, I'm very excited to answer some questions. I was telling you the other day that I am such a poor storyteller that there's no way I could ever remark my entire life in chronological order, follows any sort of timeline. If I'm telling a story, I have to tell you about 10 other stories just to preface what I'm trying to say. So I'm glad we're using this format. I probably need it more than you do. I love it. Yes. But we both do. Keeps us on track a little bit. A little bit. Sorry in advance. And our listeners don't do not know how much content we have to delete sometimes when we go off topic. I don't even know. It's probably taken us an hour to even hit the record button because we had to talk prior to us even getting started. Yes. Are you ready? Ready. Hit me, Rachel. Hit me with your best shot. So my first question, I was curious how you describe your condition to your peers growing up in school, your neighbors, friends. Did you keep it quiet? I did. I I kept it quiet. There wasn't a lot of describing. I was diagnosed at 12. At that age, I just really kind of went about my life. I was put on a medicine and it pretty much controlled me to a point that I was living very naive. I was young and I was controlled and things were great. And it wasn't until my high school years that I was actually blindsided by epilepsy and and the reality of it hit me. I did hide it. It wasn't again until high school and it came about. I started having breakthrough seizures and I was in uh, creative writing class. And so I decided to write a paper and do a presentation on epilepsy and how I described it to my peers as a lightning storm in my brain. You know, it just, uh, things just, when you see them in the sky, there's big lightning strikes and things couldn't really get from point A to point B. I presented it. I don't know if I presented it just for their educational purpose or also for 
maybe to protect myself as well. And I didn't know I was really doing that, but I, I was maybe in case I were to have a seizure in front of my peers, which I, I never did, but I was a very lucky epileptic. I, I was never really bullied. Everybody kind of accepted, you know, even after they knew I, I was never talking about, if they talked about me, they were talking behind my back and they were doing that anyways about other stuff. So, you know, that's just part of growing up. So no, I wasn't specifically like pitied or I wasn't bullied for, you know, bringing that out to my peers in high school. You mentioned you kept it quiet though. Was that from 12 years old to high school? Yeah, I was, I would say it was just more because I was, I was naive about the fact that I was, I was controlled. I was, I was doing well. It hadn't really hit me. I didn't know that it would, you know, at 12, you don't think about relationships and what, you know, what it would do to affect a relationship. You don't think about driving. Um, I was an avid horse rider, so um, it didn't affect that at all. So I just kept up with that and seemed like my life wasn't really, it was like, had a seizure, I got this diagnosis and take this medicine and okay. And then it changed in high school. So was there a fear of you being in, were you in 4-H or you were, so was there a fear of like you having a seizure and falling off your horse? Like, isn't that Anita Kaufman's story? It is. Uh And yeah, yeah, she had a head injury. Yes. So no, that's how naive I was. I lived my life and I did not worry. And I wasn't worried about being made fun of either because that hadn't ever happened. So there was really no, I was so naive, Rachel. Yeah. Young and dumb has never gone so well with, with that, but (laughs) I was, I was living the good life after my diagnosis at 12 for a long period of time. So, so it didn't sadden you when you heard that you had epilepsy or when you experienced your first seizure, like you were pretty much like, I'm, you know, I'm controlled and it's not going to stop me going to do teenage things. Yep. It was, that's exactly how it was. And I went on from, you know, that point to get into high school and then, you know, start to have relationships. And then I started to have seizures again. And I was also of the, uh, of the age that I could drive. And I had, I was like, oh, my boyfriend going to be accepting of the situation. I get my driver's license taken away and did you? Yeah, I did. It, so back then when you when you would have that breakthrough seizure like that, and I was under the care of a neurologist and always have been, but you would you would have to report that to the DMV, then like do paperwork through the DMV and It was pretty costly, actually, but now it's just, it's written in chart notes and it's a faith. It's an oath that we take when the neurologist says your license is taken away and it's not reported to the DMV because it is given back to us and that we do gain control again of our seizures, then uh, we don't have to go through the costly process of the DMV. So you don't have to do this every time you have a major breakthrough seizure? Correct. Correct. Okay. She'll just note it in my chart notes and mm-hmm. then I can't drive and 
So then that means if I was driving and something happened, it's noted that I, sh- you know, shouldn't have been sure. driving. driving. Yeah. Do you live in hope that your seizures will be controlled one day? I do. Um, I do only because I go long periods of time of not having a seizure and, you know, having regulation within my body and whatever is happening, things are good. I've also been lucky enough to be a candidate for the vagus nerve stimulator, which is a brain implant. So I have that as well. And it's actually going off right now. And that's what's making my voice a little weird. So with the medical advancements, and with stability coming and going in my life, I do have hope. I'm going to go back to that naive 12 year old girl that I was when I was diagnosed. And I'm always going to have that glimmer of hope. A lot of people have asked me if you could write yourself a letter the day that you were diagnosed, what would you say? And, you know, I, I just, I would never let epilepsy define me, but I would go back to, I have hope. I I would go back to that little girl that was 12, 13, 14 years old and rode her horse everywhere, played with her friends, did her schoolwork, swam, boated, things that people that don't have epilepsy take for granted. You do live in hope. Yes. You know, you're, you're in that state of back when you were your seizures were controlled during your teenage years. Mm -hmm. And that's interesting to hear because knowing everything you've been through and the ups and downs and remission trips to the neurologists in Portland, that's really inspiring that you are still living in hope. And I, I don't think you should ever give up that hope because it's quite possible epilepsy is so mysterious, right? Right. So mysterious. Like, like one day my hormones could probably just totally change. I like, this is not meant for medical advice, just a side note, but one day my hormones could totally change or something weird and yeah, no more seizures or, you know, who knows. Do you feel very different from others as an epileptic? Like, or do you have some days where you don't even think about your condition? Definitely have days where I don't think about my condition. There's definitely, I, I, days that I don't think about it. The only thing currently, and as of recently, that really makes me think about it. Well, since I've been seizure free, we'll just say it's been seven months, but since I've been seizure free and doing really good, the only thing that reminds me nowadays is when my stimulator goes off. Cause that actually like physically, I can feel it in my throat and in my body. So but other than that, like, no, I don't, I don't think about it. And I honestly feel like every epileptic has their own journey. Even someone that has juvenile myclonic epilepsy, that is a female that was diagnosed at 12, her journey is a hundred percent different than mine. Okay. Maybe not a hundred percent, but different we all are epileptics and I, we all empathize and love each other and have this community, but, um, we all have our own separate journey. (laughs) We're definitely all living different journeys. You mentioned your VNS stimulator was going off. 
it, why is it going off? So it goes off all the time. And then if for some reason recognizes my heart rate changing, then it will do an extra stimulation. Mm-hmm. And that extra stimulation is a little bit harder than the one that's continuously going off every five minutes. So it's a continuous pulse every five minutes, 24 hours a day, seven yep. days a week. And then a little extra when it, does it just look at heart rate or does it look at anything beyond that? Just heart rate. And then I have a magnet that I can swipe myself. So if I was getting any sense of an aura or anything like that, then I could swipe my magnet that's implanted into my chest. I could give myself an extra stimulation. Well, the watch itself, or it's not a watch, but the magnet on your wrist that you would swipe over your VNS stimulator is not so fun looking. It's not very sexy. When Katie and I first met, (laughs) our mission was to redesign, reformat the band that, yeah, the VNS magnet band that goes on your wrist. We were like, can we make it look more like an Apple watch or something like that? Or can we Right now, there's just very limited options and it's it's yeah. a sight for sore eyes. It's a bulky thing. Definitely, that's the problem is it looks, it could look like an Apple watch, but it's just too hideous right now. And so, yeah, we wanted to give it a little sexy fashion and that was, yes, our first meeting. And yeah, I can swipe that or if I'm having a seizure, you can also swipe it. Um, so I actually carry a magnet. I have a magnet in my travel bag. I have a magnet by my bedside. I have a magnet uh, just kind of in random various places. Um, Do you swipe right or swipe left? <laughs> I swipe right. You talked a little bit about how you described your condition in one high school classroom as this electrical activity, this electrical storm. I love that image. How else did you describe your condition appears growing up? You know, to be honest, that's, that's pretty much it. I just really, oh, I, well, because we were young and there was, you know, kind of partying and stuff going on. I I did explain to them, but you know, I couldn't stay up super late and drink I wasn't a big drinker. I was usually the designated driver and, you know, that a little bit older in my life. That's kind of how I was the mama there, I guess, it turned me into. Did everyone know it? Like, did all your teachers know? No. So that's practical. Like, I didn't talk about it or to not let it define me. Like, I would never, um, I've been interviewed before and they asked me why I didn't use, like, college services and things like that and I just I never uh, that was the last thing that I was talking about I was definitely not going to walk up to a teacher and be like hey so um I've got epilepsy and now you need to like make things a little bit special like for me no I'm going to be like everybody else I'm going to get my grade like everybody else. If I have a situation, a seizure, sorry, not to call it a situation, but a seizure in the morning, typically because I have juvenile myclonic epilepsy, I I have them up on waking. Um, Thankfully, I do have a pattern. So, you know, if I were to have one, then I could let my teacher know. But that was never 
ever something I was going to just walk in and be like hey so this is me I'm I'm an epileptic like and I even for a job I would wait until like I knew that the people that I was surrounded by my bosses knew that I was so capable of doing the job that when I went to them and told them that I had epilepsy that they couldn't that it was almost like they couldn't like say anything like they'd be like whoa okay I just never wanted it to define me and I never wanted to talk about it. And it's there on every job application. There's that box. Do you have a disability and clearly defined? Do you have epilepsy? And so did, would you run into that? I mean, now I, yeah, because I'm considered disabled. I mean, because they do say like, it's a, a disability. I haven't filled out a job application for a while. Just for them to be like specific about the disability. Like, I don't know if that means like, are you on disability or is it just that you have one of these conditions? Because like, that's really up to a person's perspective. And that's like, just because I have epilepsy, I'm quote unquote disabled. Or are you asking me, am I receiving, you know, disability benefits because I have, you know, one of these conditions? So no, I'm not going to answer. Yes, I have Or, or would you need to be accommodated for your disability, I think is one of the main points of that question as well. That's interesting. I feel like we need an episode on job job applications. No, no, on job applications. And when is the right time to tell the hiring manager? And when's the right time to tell your teammates? Do you need to tell your teammates? I think that'd be really interesting to visit that. But Katie, you and I are different because I feel like if I were, I was just imagining myself in high school and like all the all-nighters I pulled junior, senior year, I would take that extension if, if if there was one. Oh my gosh, I would tell every teacher and make it very apparent, like I have epilepsy, I, I need to get my sleep. I guess that comes down to time management because they do give, Yeah, they, they apparently do give like, well, some teachers more than others, but they usually give some sort of reasonable period, but everybody waits the last minute. Come on. Right. Yes. Yeah. It was not question papers at the very last minute. Yeah. We learned it then. I did it in college even too. I was a procrastinator then, but no, and I, but I didn't. And I don't even know if some of my teachers knew to be quite honest, there was, a, you know, somebody, you, you would check in with the front office and let them know your attendance. And so my parents would call and let them know, you know, I wasn't going to be an excused absence. I was definitely a hider. And I think that that has, well, talking about it has helped me in my older, <laughs> older years in accepting what I have and how it affects me and how it affects everyone around me because I was so naive. I was also also a little, I guess, selfish. You don't realize how many people it really does affect. Speaking of people, it does affect your parents were your main caretakers, right? Yeah, correct. How did they respond to all this? How did they cope? Were they helicopter parents or did they give you the freedom you needed to live your life just as your friends did? Uh, you know, they sure did. They, they, they were uh, not helicopter parents. They gave me the freedom 
I have to say that we have a very open relationship. My parents and I open as far as they, you know, we're not on the phone with each other 24 seven every day, but they know what's going on in my life. And, um, you know, back in high school per se, I was living with them still and driving their vehicles. So I had a curfew and we didn't have, well, I didn't have a phone in high school. Uh, I mean, that was pager days. So um, I just pretty much aged myself right there, but yeah, pagers were um, what, uh, you used back then and I didn't even have one of those so it would be like mom I'm going to be at like so-and-so's house after school or you know it was really a trust and then they just knew what I was doing and so they were not helicopter parents they gave me the opportunity to to be myself they they, they did and and that included to they they weren't making me or forcing me to, um, you know, talk about my epilepsy any more than I wanted to, you know, they never would, you know, bring it up to our family and friends, close friends knew, but it's not like a topic at hand. So no, they were great. They were wonderful for the freedom support, reiterating that I'm smart and that I'm good kid and that I could do anything. They did not let me move across the country to the East Coast after freaking high school, though, for college. And I really wanted to go there. I wanted to go to Rhode Island and be a chef and ride in an equestrian school. You know what? Things happen for a reason. So I stayed on the West Coast and went to school. But where did they get their support? Was it just primarily the neurologist I'd say my grandma, like grandparents, because we did, I had cousins, aunts, uncles, we were supported and loved. And some of my parents, long time friends that I've known my whole life, they're not going to come up to me either if they haven't seen me for a while. And their first question isn't going to be like, so how are your seizures? You know, that's not what we're going to be talking about. Like, we're going to be talking about life. We're going to be talking about what's been going on. Like, how, how's Milo, what encompasses everything else. And that would kind of be the last thing that was, but you know, when I was having a really bad day, seriously Mm -hmm. depend on and know that I had my friends and my cousins and Grammy and Gaga to make me feel okay. And my mom and dad, my brother and my (laughs) sister-in-law here, let me just, let me pull out the list of thank you. This is like Oscar night. Love this idea of like generations of support and beyond your, your immediate family. But you did mention in the past that you were hospitalized sometimes for your seizures. And that's got to be pretty scary for parents. I imagine like if that were the case for Milo, like that would be a lot of stress and just a lot to deal with. Yeah, I think my mom was pretty good at like putting on a a strong, a strong mom face. She was definitely not a breakdown and cry mom. She was definitely a, she was like, we're going to, you've got to do this. We've got this to do. And like, okay, like, you know, we can power through, we can not power through, but you know, we can get through it. You got it. A problem solver. And don't, yeah, don't give up. If anything, go ride a horse, get it off your mind for a minute and then get back at it. 
So it sounds like you would escape sometimes to go ride horses. That might be like a little bit of solace, a little bit of peace for you growing up. Absolutely. Horses are a huge therapy of mine. Same with my mom. She talks about all the time when she had like horrible eczema, she'd just escape it. She hated people and would just go to her horses. When the people were cruel to her, she'd have her horses. It's amazing. Yes. I love my horses. So yes, a life without horses. I shall never know. You need to get some horses again. No, I have one still. What? My mom and dad. So Where are your mom and dad? Portland. Anyways, I need some horse therapy. I need some horse therapy here. Um, but yeah, my parents are up in Portland. I will go with you to get some horse therapy because I love horses. I went on this horse trip or this like horseback riding summer camp once and it was seven hours away in Eastern Oregon. And like, it was so intense. We I was only 12 years old and we would go on these long horse excursions up through the mountains. One time my saddle was loose and we were on the side of one of these steep mountains and on this very, very narrow trail. And I just flipped upside down. Oh no. I kept walking and you know, my feet were in the yeah. stirrup. So I, I, I held on, but you couldn't really get off. But this camp, I mean, we would, we would sleep on our saddles as pillows out under the stars I would be so thirsty I didn't know any better and I would just start drinking from the stream and they'd scream at me gotta put what is it iodine drops in it or something that's like a horse camp cowgirl camp I lost a lot of weight too I was I was a chubby kid but I came back from that like 10 pounds lighter because by I would like to sleep in in the morning and by the time I wake up for breakfast all that was left was like an apple back on the horse <laughs> and they're like she'll learn she'll learn and you're like no no I need okay. my sleep we're riding sunrise to sunset I, I I needed my sleep it was good that would be an experience listening your memories it sounds like it was a little more challenging for your dad than your mom yeah poor dad dad I'm sorry no <laughs> um no I just think that actually honestly I wouldn't say that it was more challenging for either one. I would say equally, you know, I think they both held a strong face and they both did their best to feed me, you know, positivity, but on still be realistic about, you know, what was happening, but not be, not be the helicopter parents where it's like, oh my gosh, you, this is, you're never going to be able to be, you know, you're never going to be normal, you know, not, 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 <laughs> not that. To a kid, you're never going to be normal again. <laughs> yeah. Like, there was nothing like that, but I think they'd both be very scared when I'd have a seizure and they both to this day don't, oh, I'll, I'll tell you the truth. Like when after I moved out of their house and got married, like there were times where I'd be like, just don't call them and bug them and tell them that I had a seizure. It's, you know, it, it's not worth like making them upset. You That's- consider their feelings, but, but then that would probably upset them because they like to. Oh yeah. And then it turns into that. Then it's, they get it like a couple weeks later. It's like, oh yeah, everything's okay. But you know, oh, this happened before I got my brain implant I was having a lot of seizures that made me eligible for the VNS and I got really scared to the point where I hadn't really so that's back this kind of loops to 
mental health thing, I hadn't really ever experienced anxiety with seizures until I really thought about, and this is going to sound a little bit morbid, but this is the truth and just as raw and realistic. But I thought about, I would have a seizure in the morning, you know, with my three-year-old son who, you know, can walk and talk a little bit, but can't use a phone and, and die possibly because I have chronic tonic seizures where I fall over and I could suffer a head injury. And, you know, I'm having these visions and I'm having these thoughts that I've never, ever had before. That was a time when epilepsy became the most realistic to me. And I had, yeah, it was literally, I, 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 I was having really bad, like visions of what, what, what could happen and what might happen. And my anxiety was through the roof. I hadn't really gotten my seizures under control until, uh, well, right before I met you, I went status just a condition where you never return to baseline after having your first seizure, five tonic-clonics in less than 24 hours. I had to be administered my intranasal rescue meds, three out of the five seizures. High anxiety is one of the worst things high stress levels is it can lead to more seizures it's yeah it's a cyclical type of battle like you you kind of go into a fight or flight and i was being rushed to the ohsu emergency room department and i don't remember a whole lot from the day but when i finally like recovered then like next day or two my son asked me he said would you be alive if you wouldn't be given that stuff up your nose and um that stretch of time between when I started to like have the realization that I could die and then when I went status I'm happy to say that ever since I went status (laughs) I've been seizure free so that's been seven months and so I was having about every three hours. And can you describe a tonic-clonic seizure again, just for the listeners? So a tonic-clonic seizure is a grand mal seizure. Um, you're going to have, in some instances, well, in most instances, the person completely goes unconscious. So if they're standing, they will typically fall. If they're sitting, they might just slump over to the side or out of the chair that they're sitting in. There might be some jerking motions, depending on if they have myclonic or there's a variety of types of grand mal's or tonic-clonic seizures. So um, there can be some vigorous jerking of arms and legs, or there can be where the person has like severe clenching where they just, their arms and legs just kind of curl up really, really tight and kind of shiver. And then there's typically uh, oral injuries because your tongue is typically bitten. And that's what a tonic-clonic seizure is. It can be a bloody mess like the shadow I saw of your bed sheets after a while. Looks like a murder scene. Murder scene. Yeah, it does. Are you conscious? I'm not. 
I'm not conscious. No, I go completely unconscious. So I have an aura and then I typically have the seizure and I can remember a few things leading up to the seizure. And then I go completely unconscious, have the seizure and I go into my post ictal, which is after your seizure state. And I'm generally like typically really, really sick and dizzy. Can't, I ask a lot of questions because I, I don't know where I'm at. I try to figure things out. Uh, yeah, it's, it takes about 10 to 12 to maybe 15 hours to recover from a seizure. And, then, and I was thinking that in this time of, um, you know, camera phones, I've been monitored. I've been in the epilepsy monitor monitoring unit and they have like a video of me, but now plenty of other, you know, people have seen me have them and explained to me what I do. And has your son seen you have a tonic clonic seizure? One time had to actually go get someone because I was, he goes outside and mom's doing that thing again. Yeah. He was actually present when I went status. So, um, he, well, and he can't probably get too close and help you too. Cause you're thrashing. It could be dangerous. Right. He just really, he's so cute. He's so, so sweet. So supportive. He'll usually get me a puke bowl. Isn't he just the sweetest little kid? <laughs> and, or like, if I need, I always need water. So he'll get me water and, you know, generally I'll just, I'll just be like, Milo, I got, you know, I need after to- you wake up. Well, it's during that whole process of waking up and I'll usually be laying on the couch or in my bed or something. So if I have, if I'm lucky enough to like really like zone in and tune in on my aura and be like, I think I'm going to have a seizure. I should go lay down then. Well, you know, August, I was sent to the emergency room to get stitches in my face because I fell on my tile floor and I sliced my eye open and then I had to get my rescue meds, which is, I put me to sleep. And so I, yeah, it was just a big, a big ordeal. It's great because the the worst is I might pee myself or, you know, and then there's a bloody mess and okay, but I'm in bed and there's no real injury. That was, that was odd. That was like, that was the first time this is going to be a whole nother episode, but that was the first time that sex has sent me to the ER. (laughs) But no, that's, there was, if there was an aura, yeah, I was ignoring it because I was busy. (laughs) There's that. And I wanted to know, because last episode, we talked a lot about some famous figures and celebrities tapping into their creativity and how having having epilepsy has influenced that creativity or theoretically has influenced their creativity if we don't have a lot of information on that. What about you? Do you think that you were in the reef making business? You were pretty artsy, individual, creative. Would you attribute that at all to having epilepsy? I do in a way because There's a way that I, and I'd also a a little bit of my equestrian ability as well. So I'm, I like to paint. Yes. I love to, to play with wreaths. I love to garden. And so like creating a garden, you know, understanding 
like colors and life and things like that. So yeah, I do believe that it has attributed a little bit to my creativity, but more in a sense of back to that like word escaping, coping kind of way where you just kind of get lost in it. I like music, but I'm not a great dancer. <laughs> and so um, I enjoy music. You know, I just get lost in my paintings and I just sit there and just kind of tune into them. And I don't know if that's me escaping epilepsy or if that's just me escaping life or <laughs> what that is. But my epilepsy is part of my life. But I, I, I think it does let me dig a little bit deeper into my creative side. Um, I feel also like I don't really get scared or I don't like really have that like sense of like, oh, like, oh, I shouldn't do this or try this or something like that. Like I kind of, I'm kind of open. So like, even though I can't dance, I'm gonna dance. So you'll find me on the dance floor. <laughs> but And I might sing too. So, yeah, what I call it a tribute to creativity or uh, an escape. I'd say it's a little bit of both. What about in the preictal or postictal phase? Do you ever have like some thoughts come to your mind that prob- probably, w- you know, you're almost in like a dreamlike state in some of these resembling like being in a, almost in a different realm. Do you ever, can you think of an instance where you've, you know, had some thoughts go through your head that wouldn't really appear normally when you're fully cognitively there? Yeah, so definitely it happens. Um, it's literally deja vu where I will get a sensation or a feeling that I've done or been or had like this experience before or something. I might not, it might not be happening right then and there, but it could be something in my mind where I'm like, whoa that that happened and then and I'm I'm realizing at that point that I'm having deja vu which is one of my auras and it's almost like I can tap into this yeah whatever this sounds crazy I can almost tap into another like realm I'm almost tapping into this other realm of myself uh, of my being layer like my body was my body once there and I was actually looking at myself doing that? That's how the deja vu feels. I've smelt this smell before. Wait a second. It's total outer body experience. It is. It is. And then you realize like, well, what just happened? And then you're like, okay. And then sometimes you can just have, to, I can, again, not just, I'm going to just say everybody has their own personal experience. I'm not a doctor. I'm not giving me any advice do not listen to me. I'm not a doctor, <laughs> but, um, with mine, I can, I can just have like deja vu and be like, okay, I'm having deja vu. <sighs> it's not going to be a seizure. I can still just have a, a spin. Yeah. Like everybody else has deja vu sometimes, but this will be like, you can tell when the deja vu is intense like really yeah. intense like and it's getting like more and more and more intense oh, and then yeah other things yeah. start happening before a seizure just not the deja vu but yeah so then I'm like okay well Katie thank you so much for sharing just a glimpse into your experiences living with juvenile myoclonic epilepsy that was just really interesting to hear 
I don't know. I thank like you. Thank you so much for what a journey you've been on. Just a normal kid, horseback riding, friends, school, went to college, swimming, swimming, had a baby baby, and all the time, like this has just been at play, like dealing with uncontrolled seizures. Yeah. A third of people live with uncontrolled seizures. Yeah. Yeah. So I am that one third and it's crazy. So when I see those statistics, it just blows my mind. Like, you know. One in 26 people have it, are diagnosed with epilepsy. And then I'm thinking, oh my gosh. And then, you know, one in three are like not controlled. It's like, oh. But you're a perfect example, a beautiful example that you can live a full, long. At least give it your your best. At least give it your best. Because in the end all, like, you can't be at epilepsy's mercy. Like you, you've got to respect it and you've got to have boundaries, but got to live life. You've only got one. We've only got one. And as you know, because listeners, it will be Rachel's turn next time where I get to interview her and we get to get a little bit deeper into Rachel's life and why she has taken on this role of co-host and why epilepsy means so much to her and thank you for listening tonight listeners or whenever you listen to this getting to know me a little bit and my journey understanding me a little bit and my passion for epilepsy if you have any topic ideas questions or research you are curious about we would love to hear from you drop us a message on our instagram account 26 podcast or email us at info at 26.org Thank you for listening.